Good morning. As Josh said, this is the beginning of the Riding Carnival, the 13th annual Riding Carnival. At the conclusion of chapel today, our own Dr. Jesse Long will begin the reading marathon. It will continue for 24 hours, and it will conclude at the end of chapel tomorrow uh, with Josh Stevens. In the meantime, we have chapel today. We also have, throughout the reading marathon, in the evening we have the movie. Uh, the final film in the series will be shown tonight here in the Moody. And then tomorrow, the carnival begins as soon as chapel ends. Today, though, I'd like to talk a little bit about what this story means for all of us. Love, bravery, and sacrifice, faith, and fiction in Harry Potter. One value of fiction is that in an obviously unreal world, we can be shown what is truly real more clearly. Things like good and evil, freedom and tyranny, friendship and betrayal, conviction and compromise, these are starkly drawn. And by reading and entering into that world for a while, we consider our own sense of justice, virtue, commitment, and ethics, and we're challenged to re-enter our own world as more enlightened, responsible people. Now, not all fiction works like this, but good fiction does. And by that, I mean the kind that while it might not always or on every page portray goodness, it leaves no doubt in readers' minds what, in fact, is good. Oppressive and manipulative leaders, dark and dangerous powers, selfish and weak characters, violent and tragic conflicts, these can be effective elements in a story arc that ultimately causes readers both to appreciate and to question what is good. We learn along the way, or we're simply reminded, that certain ways of living lead to happiness and joy peace, even and especially if the path to such fulfillment is marked by sacrifice, loss, pain, and hardship, and that certain ways of living, particular choices, responses, and perspectives lead to greater sorrow, more difficult paths, and more destructive consequences. The people we meet in the story have something to say to us, often asking us the questions, well, what would you do? What would you have done? And do you have the courage? Are you so different? As Daniel Taylor says, every powerful character we encounter in a story is a challenge to our character and holds the possibility of changing us. And the characters are usually in the same position we find ourselves in, as readers with many pages yet unturned, as humans living in a world full of possibilities and uncertainties. They, too, wonder what will happen They don't know how things will turn out. They can't know how much it will cost to live in the end. And just as we imagine the perfect ending and we hope for the best, the characters work towards some goal, never really knowing, but making choices in view of an end that they cannot see, just like we do. The hero on the journey keeps walking, continues to struggle, stumbles on toward the battle that must be his last. He knows that the only hope for his beloved, for his friends, for his people, is to risk it all, whatever the cost. Reflecting on what this classic plot means for us, Donald Williams asserts that that epic adventure story, that ideal romance, that perfect comedy, they are all our story and God's. The hero, at great personal sacrifice, defeats the villain and rescues the damsel in distress, and they ride off into the sunset to live happily ever after. This basic plot we keep coming back to is salvation history writ small, as it were. 
Jesus Christ stepped into a tragic story and turned it into a comedy. His loving sacrifice, finding what was almost lost forever, restoring a broken relationship and redeeming the world of men. The human story, its conflict, its climactic moment, its hero, its narrative trajectory, all of these are bound up in the person of Jesus Christ, born of Mary, crucified, raised on the third day, ascended to heaven. The narrative of Christian salvation history is something quite specific then, but it's also everywhere. It's in fairy tales, short stories, novels, and films. Wherever love inspires bravery to meet death with sacrifice. It's also at number four, Privet Drive. But that version of this story begins back in Godric's Hollow, where James and Lily Potter watch over baby Harry. Fearful of the wrath of a terrible enemy, but unaware of the betrayal of a trusted friend. The prophecy had spoken of a child, and Lord Voldemort followed the traitor's words to the potter's doorstep. An unforgivable curse, and James is dead. Lily stands between her baby and the Dark Lord, offering her life in exchange. Avada Kedavra. Lily falls. And in this world, where wizards wield wands and powerful spells fill the air, the words that called them into being still echoing in the darkness, unseen forces are at work. Souls and spirits, loyalties and vows, love and hate, life and death, these too hang in the air. As Lily falls to the floor, the love, the bound mother to son, lives on and lingers, a power too great for death to claim. And it fills the crib where Harry cries, a sword and a shield, a weapon and a defense, held up with his mother's last breath as a widow's last hope for her baby now orphaned. And it works. Voldemort's curse redounds upon his own head, leaving Harry with a scar upon his and reducing the killer himself to, quote, less than spirit, less than the meanest ghost. Now, in the first book of the series, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Dumbledore tells Harry how he had managed to survive the killing curse and become the boy who lived. Your mother died to save you. If there's one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. He didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved deeply, even through a person who loved us, is gone. It will give us some protection forever. In the fifth book, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Dumbledore explains how his aunt and uncle's home on Privet Drive was a refuge for young Harry, a stronghold against the enemy, a defense that draws upon the power of Lily's sacrifice. You would be protected by an ancient magic of which he, Voldemort, knows, which he despises, which he has always, therefore, underestimated to his cost. I'm speaking, of course, of the fact that your mother died to save you. She gave you a lingering protection that he never expected, a protection that flows in your veins to this day. I put my trust, therefore, in your mother's blood. I delivered you to her sister, her only remaining relative. She might have taken you grudgingly, furiously, unwillingly, bitterly, yet she still took you, and in doing so, she sealed the charm I placed upon you. Your mother's sacrifice made the bond of blood the strongest shield I could give you. 
What Harry struggled to understand was that this horrid place that he had to call home, where he never felt like a nephew, much less like a son, was somehow the best place for him during those long, agonizing summers between school years at Hogwarts, and that his early childhood there, while filled with loneliness, hardship, abuse, and neglect, was ultimately redeemed by his mother's love, that her sacrifice not only saved his life that night in the crib, but also every day since, and that his aunt's begrudging hospitality, though coerced and resented with bitterness, could not undo what his mother's willing surrender had secured. In the sixth book, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Dumbledore reveals to Harry how the power of love has not just been something that has worked externally upon him as a force directed at his life, it has also been at work within Harry, inuring his mind, body, and soul against the evil that would deceive, seduce, and destroy him. You are protected, in short, by your ability to love. The only protection that could possibly work against the lure of power like Voldemort's. In spite of all the temptation you have endured, all the suffering, you remain pure of heart, just as pure as you were at the age of 11 when you stared into the mirror that reflected your heart's desire and it showed you only the way to thwart Lord Voldemort and not immortality or riches. From his arrival at Hogwarts until now, Dumbledore explains, Harry has exhibited not just the power of love, but the power to love. He has the capacity, the ability, the inclination to love, and his presence in Harry's life drives out fear and repels evil. It rightly orders his affections and so protects him from all that selfish desires would do to him. Now, one year before this conversation about love, Harry had been momentarily possessed by Voldemort, who in the film version of The Order of the Phoenix is portrayed as having been cast out by Harry's meditation upon love and friendship, his soul once more saved by the love of and the love for others. Dumbledore continues, reminding Harry of that day when love itself exercised evil. You have flitted into Lord Voldemort's mind without damage to yourself, but he cannot possess you without enduring mortal agony, as he discovered in the ministry. I do not think he understands why, Harry, but then he was always in such a hurry to mutilate his own soul, he never paused to understand the incomparable power of a soul that is untarnished and whole. Throughout this series, Voldemort has sought immortality and tried to conquer death, using murder as his means to that end. He has spread himself thin, splitting his soul seven ways, lodging a portion in each horcrux. The diary, the ring, the locket, the cup, the diadem, the snake Nagini, and in Harry himself. And at every turn, he has failed, routinely, spectacularly, and ultimately, completely. In the last book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, it is Harry who finally wields all three of those Deathly Hallows, the Invisibility Cloak, the Resurrection Stone, and the Elder Wand. And it is Harry who once more survives the killing curse because of a willing sacrifice, his own. Voldemort has sought power and used power, but his greatest weakness, as Dumbledore has once told him, was, quote, his failure to understand that there are things much worse than death. Now, toward the end of the story, as Harry is once more poised to deliver Voldemort this terrible and finally final blow, Dumbledore recounts the many ways that Voldemort's obsession with power has left him vulnerable to the very forces 
which his pride and ambition have so thoughtlessly dismissed. And his knowledge remained woefully incomplete, Harry. That which Voldemort does not value, he takes no trouble to comprehend. Of house elves and children's tales of love, loyalty, and innocence, Voldemort knows and understands nothing. Nothing. That they all have a power beyond his own, a power beyond the reach of any magic, that's a truth he's never grasped. Harry helps us see here the value system of the narrative. The themes and the ideals of this series are displayed in sharp contrast to the failed quest of a dark power for its own twisted, murderous immortality. Here is a deeper magic that is no magic at all, actually. What Harry has and knows and lives by is a power that cannot be summoned or exerted through spells or wands or potion recipes. Dobby, the house elf, died to save his friends. Beetle the Bard preserved a story about conquering death. Loyalty bound Ron and Hermione to Harry, just as it bound Harry to Dumbledore and thus to the Phoenix Fox, who lived to die and died to live. Love shielded Harry from all that would rob his soul of innocence, keeping it whole and incomparably powerful. And Voldemort never got it, never knew such truth, couldn't understand it, much less believe in it, or accept it. But interestingly and mysteriously, one of Voldemort's followers did come to know such love, did believe in it, and lived and died for the sake of it. Severus Snape loved Lily Evans. And just as Lily's love spared her son that day at the crib, shielding him from death, protecting him until the day Harry would defeat Voldemort, her love also spared Severus. It guarded him like occlumency against the invasive and destructive evil that haunted his former fellow Death Eaters and overwhelmed them with weakness and fear. This love covered Snape and filled him instead with the capacity for sacrifice, bravery, and selflessness. Before that fateful evening, when his first and only love was murdered while protecting her son, Snape had begged Voldemort to spare her. This meant that Lily's death was not inevitable or necessary, and so her sacrifice was a willing one and pure. In effect, then, Lily's lovability and Severus's ability to love made the powerful protection over the infant Harry possible. On the basis of Snape's love for Lily, Dumbledore later secures his commitment to guard the young Harry, ensuring that his mother's sacrifice would not be in vain. And Severus agrees, but only if Dumbledore promises never to reveal, as it turns out, the best of Snape. Now, all throughout the series, we're right there with Harry, despising Snape's harshness, the unfairness, the sneering derisiveness. We wonder, along with Harry, if Snape can be trusted. And we're right there with Harry, too, when upon Snape's death, his dying memory reveals the whole story. The love for Lily, the Patronus charm in her honor, the many times that Severus had risked everything as a double agent, pretending to be Lord Voldemort's man while serving as Dumbledore's and Lily's. We at last understand his role in Dumbledore's death, and we know why, after all this time, his final wish is for Harry to look at him. He wants to see one last time what he had been sustained by throughout those ten painful years, finding Lily in Harry's green eyes. After all this, Harry is finally ready to face his fate, 
to choose sacrifice, to risk everything to save his friends and his world from the evil that had hoped to triumph through his death. And once again, it is love that makes him brave enough to allow his own life as a vessel of Voldemort's remaining soul to be destroyed. But it is not just the love that Lily showed by surrendering herself. It is also the love that compelled Severus Snape to give everything to her son. It saved Harry, it saved Snape, and it inspired and defined the life of Harry Potter, the boy who lived and the one who mastered death. Now in the epilogue, as the children of our characters head off to school, we find Harry and Jenny, Ron and Hermione, as well as Draco Malfoy, who nods curtly in their direction as his own son boards the train. Now, Draco survived, you might recall, because Harry and Ron had showed him mercy and chose life instead of revenge. And his survival was all that his mother had cared about. In the end, even Narcissa Malfoy chose to overcome the selfishness and bad faith for which she was named, and she risked her life to lie to Voldemort. In return for Harry's whispered verification of Draco's safety, Narcissa confirmed Harry's death, even though she could feel his heartbeat. She deceived the Dark Lord because she loved her son more than she belonged to Voldemort. Again, evil is undone by the sacrificial love of a mother, and her choice changed the course of all their lives. We also find there in the epilogue Harry's second child, Al, worrying about what house the sorting hat will put him in. His older brother has taunted him with visions of Slytherin, and so Harry takes the young one aside and explains, Albus Severus, you were named for two headmasters of Hogwarts. One of them was a Slytherin, and he was probably the bravest man I ever knew. But if it matters to you, you'll be able to choose Gryffindor over Slytherin. The sorting hat takes your choice into account. And so we see two great themes. Albus Severus is who he is because of love and because of the bravery and sacrifice that such love inspired. But when it comes down to it, we have a choice. And such choosing makes us and shows others who we truly are. This is a story about the transformative and unkillable power of love. It's power to bless and redeem greater than the power of any curse that would control others cause pain, or end life. And we have faith that such love is no fiction. This series of books is just a shadow, an echo of the greatest story ever told, of the greatest love ever known. We hope that you enjoy the reading marathon. We hope that you join us tomorrow for the Riding Carnival. You are dismissed.